I'm Valerie Van Coten, Executive Director at Pella Historical in Pella, Iowa, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. I was in fourth grade at Peoria Christian Grade School, and that is not Peoria, Illinois. Wait, which, which time was that that you were in fourth grade? No, my goodness, Ken. I went to fourth grade <laughs> once, one and a half times. His and, favorite time. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, Peoria Christian Grade School, Peoria, Iowa. Uh, I don't know, a town huge, 40 people maybe, six houses. And um, Before you continue, I have a really important question to oh ask my goodness. our uh, guest today, uh, Val. Val, how do you uh, pronounce the town uh, Peoria? Well, around here we call it Puri. <laughs> yes. I, I could not figure that out when I moved to the area. <laughs> okay, here's what it is. The people who went to Peoria are like loud and proud. And they're, it's Peoria. But everyone else is like, it's Puri. It's too many syllables. There's... <laughs> Okay, so let me finish my story. This opener, Sorry. Kid. <laughs> it's just such a, reason, a regional colloquial colloquialism. Yeah, look, man, we're we're a school of forty-two kids total. There was, I think I graduated with six kids. My brother graduated with four or five, and when but when I was in fourth grade, Kent, I was in fourth grade, and I uh, first time, last time, <laughs> uh, we we came up to the May. May, the beginning of May, and, and uh, we did this thing that I did not think of it at all at the time. But uh, you dress up as a Dutch person or a, a Dutch kid would have like 400 years ago, like hundreds of years ago, right? And uh, and then we, we got on bicycles and we represented ourselves in a large parade, the Tulip Time Parade in Pella, Iowa. Peary's like, Oh no. Fury's <laughs> like 10 minutes away from Pella. And so we'd represent ourselves and we'd ride around. And I did this fourth through eighth grade. It was a great time. And then when you were done with your bikes, you took off those costumes, you wore your normal clothes, and you ran around town with your friends. So I have this deep connection with this time called Tulip Time and Pella. It happens first weekend of May. And then my wife got here. She's from Ohio. And she went one time. She's like, this is just a dutch renaissance fair and i was like what <laughs> and then i went to a renaissance fair and she's right but <laughs> i'm bringing up tulip time because in iowa we are in pella we are about to celebrate tulip time and kent and i thought it would be a really cool time to uh to dive into not only the history of tulip time but the history of pella because some of the settlers in pella were got to see some of the first you know settlements in iowa and it's a really cool thing so we reached out to originally the Skolty House, which is this historical house, I believe the Skolty family was the family that founded Pella, um, reached out and, and we were directed to Pella Historical Museum and their director, Val Van Coten. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for finding your way over here. Yeah. That's great. Man, so she is so wonderful that I called her, I think last Friday, it's a Monday. And it's really busy for her because it's about to be tulip time. Downtown is crazy. On Saturday, I tried to go to the Windmill Cafe, and I had to wait like an hour, which, I mean, it's fine. It's great food, but I couldn't believe it. I kind of threw a little fit with my wife. I was like, <laughs> not having it. It's just because it's such a cool place to be. Downtown Pell, there's a lot of people. So you must be very busy. And and uh, this morning, or no, late th early this afternoon, you said, uh, you called me and said, hey, I'm just getting back. Would this afternoon work? And and so we we, we got together, and, and uh, I really appreciate it, but... Uh, the, the first thing I want to ask you about is tulip time. Why? 
Why do we why do we have this Dutch Renaissance fair? <laughs> I've never heard it referred to it to that way, but that's that might be uh, that might be apt. Uh, tulip time. I I have done a lot of study on the beginnings of tulip time. Uh, the first they, it started in the 1930s basically as picnics. They were a different people who came from different provinces would have picnics. So there was a Gelderland picnic. There was a Friesland picnic. There was, you know, people from this village had a picnic. Are those different regions in yes, Holland? Yes. Okay. There's 12 provinces in Holland. Okay. And, you know, different people from different provinces uh, got here and liked to kind of meet up and talk about things. And, and in 1935, they decided to do something a little more. Um, they had an operetta called Tulip Time Impella. Hmm. And I've had a lot of people say, why don't we restage that opera? Well, it's it was really bad. <laughs> it was really cheesy. Have I don't you think, seen it? I, I've, I've got the music. So, oh, no. Um, I don't think we want to restage it, but it was, it was really kind of what started Tulip Time. The next year, they actually had um, speakers, and Tulip Time really started as this. It was five days each day had a theme and speakers would come in and speak to that theme. Like there was a, a history day, which was just about Pella's founding. There was a central college day. There was a neighbor's day where towns around would send somebody to speak. I mean, it was more of a Chautauqua type thing than it was a festival, but uh, they learned real quickly that people wanted to come and they wanted to see these people in Dutch who wore Dutch costumes to these things. And so the first big year, 1936, um, they had it in June. They didn't have any tulips. So one of the local wood, wood, um, woodwork guys, George Heron, made 125 four-foot-tall wooden tulips. Huh. And 125 yeah. of them. My and we goodness. still have some of, some of the originals around. Oh, really? And they decided after that, it was so well-received that they would, would plant tulips the next fall. So really, uh, tulip time, 1937, was probably the first time that had tulips and the first time it was in May. Yeah. Um, but I, I really think, looking at that era, it was the middle of the Depression. It was, um, you know, anything that could bring people into your town was a good thing. Sure. But I also think that these, these people who were doing this were the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of the original settlers. Mm. And... the Skolte, our, our founder, was very firm on become an American, learn English, huh. become a citizen, wear Americanized clothing, and, and his followers mostly did do that. Mm. Um, so I think when you hit the 30s, you have these grandchildren, great-grandchildren who are thinking, you know, we don't know a whole lot about yeah. our Dutch heritage. They didn't talk about it as much as, as we would have liked. And um, I think that's part of that longing is kind of what started Tulip Time. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. That is fascinating. Do you think that, so I actually have a bunch of friends who, some of them have grandparents that still spoke mm -hmm. uh, Dutch. Is that, mm -hmm. they spoke Dutch? So Dutch or Fries. Why was it because they actually came from Holland? They heard a bunch of Dutch people were here or why did they still speak Dutch in the area? Well, I'm guessing most of the people who, who live in Pella today who still speak some Dutch came after World War II. Uh, there was a big influx into Canada and the U.S. from uh, Netherlands natives after the war. Hmm. And so mo almost everybody I know of in Pella who still speaks some Dutch are elderly, mm -hmm. and they came after the war. Yeah. So that's probably what it was. My 
grandma, if she was still with us, she would have been, I think, 96. And she talked about she was sent to school and her teacher would hit her knuckles with the ruler when she would accidentally say things in Dutch and, yeah, instead of be. English because she just she grew up speaking Dutch and then, sure. you know, hit five or six years old. And from then school. on, it was supposed to be English. Yeah. yeah. Some of the some kids, you know, really did live in homes where they only learned Dutch. Most people like my parents will, will say their parents would speak it. But it was only when they didn't want the kids to understand what they were saying. Yeah, that's what my that's what my grandfather says. Yeah, and I told my mom, I said that's crazy. I said that would have been the number one incentive for me to want to learn. <laughs> that's learn right. Dutch. <laughs> but they they didn't do they didn't do that so much. So I mean, we still in Pella, it's interesting because we still have a lot of what I call Yankee Dutch words that we mm. use every day. Hmm. I mean, and I'm probably my staff laughs at me all the time, but there are dozens and dozens of these words that. I just sprinkle throughout conversation because I was raised with them and people who aren't Dutch will look at me or Dutch background and say, what the heck did, was that? <laughs> what are some, what, what are some of the most common? Oh, like, um, you know, quit throubling through my office, you know I mean? <laughs> really? Yeah. Or, you know, get your, get your throop out of the bathroom, you know, your junk or, <laughs> or that something is feast. If, if it's feast, it's hard to describe feast. It's gross. It's dirty. Yeah, I've heard that You've one. Heard for feast. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's a good, but there's, I mean, there's dozens. Or if a kid is knocking, my grandson knocks over his his glass of of juice. I'll say, oh, "You're such a canoe it," you know. Just, <laughs> just, and I didn't even know a lot of those were Dutch words until I went to college, and my roommates were like, well, <laughs> <laughs> "Yeah, like just so you know, you're not speaking English." Yeah, right. right. They look at me kind of crazy. So. Oh man, that, that's yeah. really interesting to get that perspective because um, so my grandfather's family. They emigrated to originally to the Soli area, um, and I think that was probably in like 1880s, 1890s. And for anyone who doesn't know, Sully's also like 10 minutes, 15 minutes from right, Pella. Right, mm -hmm. and then that th those you know the family just kind of moved south that distance that Nick just described, mm -hmm. and uh, so his so he that would have been my grandfather's great grandfather, and then um, his grandfather um i think spoke you know fluent dutch trained his dad on it and his mom also was dutch you know descent and uh so my grandpa grew up learning some dutch but uh you know when i was a kid whenever we'd play hide and go seek over at grandma and grandpa's house grandpa would count in dutch and so we kind of learned <laughs> to count in dutch but it was but he said that exact thing that you mentioned where uh, his parents would, would mm -hmm. speak Dutch only when they wanted to pull one over on the kids. You yeah, know? yeah. You know, and there's so many. I mean, we think of Dutch as this sort of monolithic language. But in Dutch, I mean, every every community has its own version. Kind of like a and dialect has its own or dialect. Okay. I mean, there are hundreds of those all over the Netherlands. Then you get to Friesland, the northernmost province, and it has its own language, Fries, which is... To me, incomprehensible. Um, it doesn't really look like Dutch. Um, it, it's a whole different language. They also, most of them also speak Dutch, and almost everybody in the Netherlands speaks English now, too. But if you get somebody with a strong uh, dialect from, say, Groningen, and they meet somebody from Limburg who also has a dialect, they, they will not be able to understand each other. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. That's I mean, it makes sense if you think about America, you get like the Appalachian Mountain, you know, strong, thick accent, or then you go out to uh, the West Coast and you got a more yeah. re relaxed uh, um, 
way of talking. I don't know. It's just very, it's very fascinating to me because like, or even England, you think about England, you're like, oh, people with an English accent, but there's like mm-hmm. 14 different distinct, oh, exactly. yeah. you know, and yeah. then there's sub accents. Yeah, I know, point. but the Netherlands is such a tiny country. I mean, mm. it, you could fit three and a half of the Netherlands in the state of Iowa. Oh, wow. So, I mean, you can drive across the whole country, well, from east to west in about two hours and from north to south in maybe four. Okay. But, I mean, a country that size has 17, 18 million people and so many dialects. It's just crazy. Yeah, Hmm. that is really kind of along the same topic. I'd heard before that a lot of the Dutch last names around here are were are kind of sarcastic because <laughs> that when they were in the Netherlands, Nick, you described it as you were like a son of, you know, yeah, I'm Nicholas son of, you know, John or whatever. But, but, uh, the, when they came to America, you know, we're big on last names here. And so it was kind of like, Hey, if you're going to be a documented citizen of America, you got to have a last name. And so they took on these, you can definitely tell it's a Dutch name, but it has like some kind of sarcastic meaning. Is that, have you heard that well, before? Yeah, there are some like that. I mean, until the 1800s, um, the Dutch used the same thing. A lot of countries in the, in Europe used you know, your last name, your last name would be your father's first name okay. and then son. So if your father's la- first name was John, your name is going to be Kent Johnson, oh, you know? Okay. And so you keep passing that down. Sure. So your last name would change every generation. When Napoleon came to power in the early 1800s, he said, uh-uh, this is too confusing. Everybody needs to take a name. Yeah. And so you see a lot of place names, you know, places like from Van Coten is from Coten, which was a village. It's no longer there. Um, or, um, you know, place, na- place names, Zut Zutphen, Zut is from, the, from Zutphen, or Rukel, Van Rukel from the village of Rukel. But you also see people who chose uh things to do with their job vandermolens of the mill okay. uh, vanderplug is of the plow uh so something to do with their their work and then you saw some who gave themselves um for whatever reason adjectives um like uh Riken means the rich one okay. wow. um, brilliant <laughs> yeah Deswart means the black one um Huh. Or, and then you get some that are really funny, like uh, Nakaborn, which is born naked. <laughs> That's my favorite one. <laughs> or uh, verdriet, As we all No are. Man's Sorrow is, is what that means. Um, I think I heard postuma means post-mortem or something like that. It could. I, I don't know. You huh. know? I mean, but they almost all have something, yeah, to do. Um, when I look around just at my, my grade school friends, you know, Rosenbaum is Rosebush. Um, you huh. know, they all had something to do with uh, their family, a trait or something to do or where they lived, that kind of thing. That'd be like if the if Joe Biden right now was like, hey, everyone needs to pick a last name. Kent being like Kent Prairie. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's like what yeah, that would exactly. be. You know? Yeah, yeah. Man. My, my, uh, so my family, I was tell, telling Val before we started, I, I, have, I come from Trelaw descent. And I was told that Trelaw means lukewarm. So, so, uh, and I, the best I can interpret that is that's a sarcastic reference to the Bible passage that says, <laughs> In Revelation, you are, you, yeah, you are lukewarm. You're spit out of right. I'd rather, <laughs> yeah. I'd rather vomit you out of my mouth. Oh, okay. Detestable before the Lord. My goodness. <laughs> I so. hope not, but, uh, I don't know. That's one. You know, there's so many, I don't know. Um, but when you start picking them apart, you know, like Vandenbroek, it's from the underwear. 
Wow. You know, you know <laughs> that's so, awesome. It just it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. And well, we literally named three quarters of the na- last names there are in Bella. <laughs> Look, so Ken, your your kids are related to people on both sides of your parents right here is that is that how that is well so so my my dad is not from this area and he he is uh danish mostly but my mom is uh her father is from this area and her mom is from wisconsin but so i'm like one what would that be like one eighth dutch okay Uh, okay but my grandfather is 100 percent dutch right right But basically, Kent was like, yeah, so we won't be letting our kids date until oh, they yeah, go off right. to college and they've got to go <laughs> oh, somewhere else. <laughs> my son, my sons said that in high school. They said, there's nobody in this high school I could date yep. because, because I'm related to every, because every girl they would talk about, we'd say, oh, yeah, you're like her third cousin or something. Dude, I had a Dutch friend bingo, who did right? that. He went on a date with a girl, found out. Like, cause he was telling, he was at a wedding and he was, he was telling some like great aunts like, oh yeah, I went on a date with this girl. And they're like, and they started playing the, what we call here, Dutch bingo. It's yes. called Dutch bingo. And they started playing the Dutch bingo game and they're like, actually that girl's your third cousin. He was mortified. <laughs> and then, and then goes and tells the girl and the girl knew. She had already <laughs> known. And, he, and he was like, what? <laughs> you know, you go out of date. But I, I don't know. I, I digress a little bit. No, it's, fun, it's, fun, it's fun going over all this stuff. It's all part of it's yeah. all part of what makes this place special. And that's one thing that we try to communicate all the time on the podcast is a connection to place. Our good friend Doug Duran up in Wisconsin talks about that. You know, people are going to value uh, the ground that they're that they live on if mm. they they value the place that yeah. it represents. Yeah, right. So right. I think it's I think it's important. Now, here's another question I had. So even going back to that first tulip time where they made the the wooden tulips, I've never understood the the strong link of tulips to the Netherlands and and just such a symbolism of of Dutch culture. Yeah. I mean, they're beautiful. They're they're spring, you know, one of the first bloomers in the spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, but why why is there such that strong connotation and connection there? You know, it actually tulips are Turkish. Uh, they came, really? Yeah, they came from Turkey in like the twelve or thirteen hundreds. For you know, and the Dutch were huge traders. The Dutch East sure. Indies Company they yep. were all over the world, and they brought tulips back. And in the fifteen early sixteen hundreds, uh, tulips traded on the the stock market in the Netherlands. I mean, people were buying and selling fortunes um of t- one bulb could go for as much as a, a house would cost what? and then the, yeah and it's called tulipomania if you want to look it up but it fi- eventually it burst and yeah. a lot of people lost a lot of money mm. but the tulip has always been a part of dutch culture um they they have been cultivating them in the netherlands for hundreds of years selling the bulbs um it's interesting because when tulip time got started in pella Holland, Michigan already had a tulip time. They'd started okay. like three years before. Mm. And they did not want us having tulip time because they had tulip time. And they wanted us to do geranium festival. Hmm. Now, can you imagine how that would have gone over? Yeah. I can't imagine today having geranium Just the name. festival. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't think it would have lasted. Or daffodil it? festival. Yeah, I don't think. <laughs> daffodil days, though. I yeah, could, daffodil I could get with days. That. Yeah. That, could, that could go. Then it, yeah, I guess tulip time is multiple days. So, I, I guess so I'm friends with... Uh, I'll just say his first name, Chandler, and mm-hmm. um, so he's one of the the parks directors here, right. and, and he says you guys play like 
is it like 120,000 tulips or something like that? Yeah. I can't remember. The city the city plants around 120 to 130,000. Wow. That's city parks and along the streets. Pella Historical plants um, just over 100,000 here at the village and at the Sculty House, Sculty Gardens. So that's um, an addition to that 130. Yeah, yeah. Oh my. Yeah. Goodness. And then we figure so another like 100,000 coming from Vermeer, Pellacorp and private uh, yeah. homes. We figure 350,000 bulbs wow. a year are it, planted. Wow. And I imagine a lot of people listening are going to be local even though most of our listeners actually aren't local to the Pella, you know, region. Um the the Pella is one of the only towns you'll ever hear of that has a full downtown square filled with shops that have just like trinkets in them and and are able to support it because of the tourism that comes to Pella because partially the Pella Historical Museum mm-hmm. you know has has cultivated such a great thing and another couple things is my mom has has traveled around the world she says there is no one in the world who is harder working than the Dutch people in Iowa she says they are some of the hardest working. So mm. you've got in a tiny little town of 10,000, just over 10,000 mm-hmm. people, you know, and surrounding, you've got Vermeer Manufacturing, which is a huge company, Pella Windows, which is a huge company, mm-hmm. um, PPI, which is a very large company, yeah. and, and many, many other. Yeah, Lily, 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 Lily. And they're originally a they're Dutch from company. the yeah. Netherlands. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, and, and so you, you, what you get when you have all these really hardworking people is uh, and and these really successful businesses is you get one of the coolest small town tourist places in, in my opinion, in the world, for sure in the United States. I mean, it, in other places in the world, they have like 2000 year old towns like th- right. those are cool. It's hard to compete right. with that. Right. But mm-hmm. but here in, in Pella, Iowa, right now, the tulips are blooming. They're beautiful. They're pink. They're red. They're yellow. They're blue. They're they're any color you can think of. And uh, and sometimes a swirl mixed colors. And, yes. and so people come in and they flock to this place. I I think I put this towards the end of my outline, but I'll just jump on it now. What in the world from your point of view, you've been able to kind of watch Pella from the inside out for a while now. What would you attribute this um, success, for lack of a better term? What, what would you say some of the best things about Pella that help um, create such an incredible environment? I think you've, you've got a lot of things that have kind of come together that a lot of small towns don't. And one is, as you mentioned, is that strong industrial base. In addition, what is almost equally as important is most of those industries are still family owned. Mm. And they have invested, they invest heavily in our community. Uh, the minute we see uh, something get sold to an outside um, entity, you just don't see that kind of investment anymore because mm. they're not here, they're not living here, they're not experiencing it. Mm. So we have this great economic base. We also have an arts and culture base with Central here, Central College. A lot of smaller towns don't have a college. Um, with the hospital coming in, you've got everything, ex- couple, two excellent school systems. Um, and all those are great, but if you didn't have people who really value their heritage, um, it, it wouldn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have a lot of people here who really have been telling the story of Pella since it was founded yeah. in 1847. And who are interested in it. And I never realized how 
crazy that was until I was in the Netherlands last September speaking at a conference there. The conference was about Pella, hmm. uh, the 175th anniversary of Pella and the settling of Pella. And they were looking at it from the people who left point of view. And I got there and these scholars from all over Europe are in this little town in the Netherlands talking about Pella in Dutch, showing pictures <laughs> on their screen of Pella and our Dutch wow. fronts and everything and trying to figure out, you know, how did this town make it? You know, it, why did people want to go? Why yeah. did they want to leave us? And it was kind of a weird experience uh, seeing it from their point of view. Um one guy told me rather laughingly, but I think he was serious. He said, well, you guys were the misfits. You know, you were the mm. troublemakers. You know, mm. we didn't want you here anyway. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. That kind of was true. Um, but when they got here and they, Skolti, for all his faults, he, he had faults, he had his finger in every pie and he was going to make sure this town succeeded. Hmm. He was the postmaster. He was the head of the school. He was justice of the peace. He owned four or five businesses. He started the newspaper. I mean, he was going to make sure that it worked. And he wow. only lived here 20 years after he got here before he died. Uh, so in that 20 years, he really put, uh, put it on the map and strategically... Uh, Pella was immediately successful, and people were coming into trade from outside of Pella. So, hmm. take us back. Take us back. You said 1840s. Okay. 1847. Take us back. Came, yep. What's going on? Why? Why is? Why are the Skoltsies coming here, and what did they do? Oh, yeah. Good. Good question. I've, I've been doing a lot of research on that too, but. Uh, things in the Netherlands were not great in the 1830s and 40s. Hmm. Uh, in the 1830s, they had a king who wanted more power and who kind of made the state church, which was the Dutch Reformed Church, but he wanted more people, uh, he wanted more money coming in from the church, he wanted to appoint the pastors, he wanted to tell them what they could preach, which would include nothing against the king. Mm -hmm. um, and so some of these people really, uh, like Skolti and Van Ralte and Brummelkamp, some of these young pastors were like, we're not going to do this. And in 1834, they seceded from the state church, which was a big deal. Oh, I mean, you just didn't yeah. do that. Um, so they were immediately banned from preaching. They did it anyway, got thrown in jail a couple times, fined. You know, this whole thing, this went on for like 10 years. Um, religiously, things had kind of smoothed down a little bit by the 1840s, but there was terrible poverty in, in the Netherlands. Mm. Taxes were horribly high, and... Um, by 1847, 46, 47, they decided to come to the U.S. Mm. They looked at other places. They looked at the Dutch East Indies, but the king said, nope, don't want you there either. If you're going to go, go. Mm. <laughs> um, they knew they were coming to the U.S., but they didn't know where. And I, I just find that to be incredibly, I don't know, the faith that these people had that we're going to go to the U.S., but we don't know where we're going to end up. Yeah, But we know our town's going to be called Pella. I said, Pella's probably the only town I know of that had a name before it had a location. <laughs> because Pella That's was a city of refuge in uh, the days of right after Christ's death where people could flee persecution from the Romans. Mm -hmm. And it would be in modern day, I don't know, Jordan or Macedonia or something. I always remember that being, you know, in the like included Bible map in the back of your Bible. Yes. <laughs> when I was a kid, I'd always... There's Pella. There's Pella. <laughs> yep, that's right. And that's what it was. So they that's always had the name. Um, but to come over, land in Baltimore, uh, have a horrible overland trip, 
then they got on flat boats, went down the Ohio, up the Mississippi, end up in St. Louis. A lot of them died on the way over or in mm. St. Louis where mm. it was a, over 100 degree. It was just miserable. They didn't. So, so the, the horrible overland trip, what was what were a lot of the hurdles that? Well, they had uh, trains. They had canal boats. They were getting on and off all the time. Um do you know how many people they were traveling with? Well, they left the Netherlands with somewhere between 700 and 800. Okay. So sizable. on four ships. And Skolti had come earlier, so he waited here for them to come and made these arrangements. But it just was, um, they were packed on flat boats for days at a time, like sardines, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and these were people, a lot of these of Skolti's followers were rather wealthy people. They had beautiful homes. They had... The women had a lot of times servants, you know, and here they are starting over with this prairie life. I just can't um, imagine doing that. Wow. I can see it for the person who is poor and has nothing to lose. Yeah. But someone who is wealthier, um, you know, what what did they have to gain by coming? Um, it was it was more a, a faith in a place that was going to have more opportunity and more religious freedom. Yeah. That's freedom, a real freedom sacrifice. Of, freedom of religion and freedom of speech is a strong yeah. motivator. Yeah, and, and freedom of choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's it's hard for us to understand that in Europe at that time, and even today somewhat, where you were born determined your life. Yeah. You When you were born, you knew you were never going to raise above whatever, whatever yeah, your yeah. father did. Yep. Yeah. You just were not. And so to go to a place where you could be anything... Um, was just incredibly enticing to these mm. people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which we, we totally take for granted. You could grow up in the poorest zip code in sure. the United States and, and die in the in the wealthiest, you know. And, right, and, but and that would never have happened in, in Europe. Most, you know? we, mm-hmm. yeah, most of all human civilization, that has not been a thing. No, it is no. a really cool thing to have here. Right. But So why, why did they come to the middle? Why didn't they hang out where there was all the industry in the 1800s? Where, like, that was like... Well, that was probably like Jay Gold, early Rockefeller age, where there's a lot of stuff going on the East Coast. Why did they they come out here? They were looking for land, and that was was it. They had quite a few farmers with them. They wanted, they were offered, in fact, when they were in St. Louis, they got stuck in St. Louis and kind of didn't know where to go. And the Mormons from Nauvoo, Illinois, were leaving, and they said, hey, you can buy our town if you want. Just buy wow. it. That's and they turned it down. They said, no, we want to start our own thing. We want to start from scratch. We don't want to take on somebody else's stuff. So they're sitting in, in, Las, Ve- in Las Vegas, St. Louis. <laughs> that would be interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In St. Louis. And, uh, well, that's what happened there. And they, <laughs> yeah, they sent out a, a group of four or five men to look it over. And they're kind of looking at Illinois. They're looking at Iowa. And they met Moses Post, who was a pastor Baptist preacher, itinerant, riding around on his horse. And he met them and he said, I know of some land between the Des Moines and Skunk Rivers in Iowa. Hmm. And there's people already settled there. There's farms. But I think they'll all sell out because they the, the pull west was huge. People wanted to go west. Right. They went up on a Thursday. By Saturday, they had 35 farms bought in gold. And 18,000 acres. Wow. <laughs> and they went back down to St. Louis and said, we found it. We're going. And then in August of 1847, I mean, they trickled in over several weeks. But end of August, 1847, they were pretty much all up here. And that's where we are sitting. That's where we're right sitting. Right now. 
Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. And so, and so they got here. What are they? I mean, there's probably a couple buildings from the farms that they bought. But what, what are they doing? How yeah. how did they build something so quickly? The only thing here in Pella was there was a little log cabin in Central Park about where the fountain is. Okay. The Tuttle cabin was standing by uh, Sunken Gardens Park. That's okay. where the Tuttles lived. And that's where they made all their land arrangements. Huh. But that was it. Um, when Maria comes... You know, she stepped out of her carriage, apparently thinking there'd be a city here. And she said, where is Pella? And he (laughs) said, we will build a beautiful Pella. Well, she wasn't real thrilled about that. And she kind of took to her little cabin in the park and waited and waited and waited for her um, Delft to come from the Netherlands, her blue and white dishes, which she loved. And they got here and opened them and they were almost all broken, except for five. And she made a path from her log cabin front door to the front door of the Sculpty House with the broken Delft. Wow. So you'll see that broken Delft motif in Pella quite a bit. Um, and when we were digging up uh, Washington Street, which is part of one, Highway 163, we found pieces of that Delft. We have it displayed over in the Sculpty oh, House. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So That's I incredible. always grew up knowing, hearing that story, but yeah, it was true. So Man. That's, yeah. that's fascinating. That is wild. And and you said that uh, Sculpty, he himself built or had a hand in... Almost everything. He sounded yeah. like a dictator a little bit. Well, well, some people, yes, he did not. I mean, Dutch people are very independent. And I mean, they followed him over and then they immediately got in fights with him about um, their title of their land. They weren't getting, they didn't think they were getting them fast enough. Well, Sculty wasn't getting them from the government. Pella had, or uh, Iowa had just become a state the year before. So things were slow. They didn't like that he wasn't preaching as much in the church. Um, some of them broke off his church, started what's now First Reformed Church. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the truth. I think there's a gene, yeah. there's a gene in Dutch people that break off churches and start new churches i don't know what it is um, but but they did call him yeah they did think he was a, a dictator or a tyrant a lot of them and i really i really believe he did what he thought was best he donated land for central park he donated land for central college um he did everything he could and i'm sure at times he felt like Moses leading people out of the slavery. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're all complaining, and, and he's probably yeah. thinking, what yeah. the heck did I do? Yeah. And um, so, there, you know, you read, you read stories. Some of the letters back home to the Netherlands from people who were here were very negative about mm. Skolti, and huh. even about the area. I mean, the women especially. Women had a tough time here. I mean, yeah. the men were talking about, this is great, we've got this farmland, and the women are like, you know, there's diseases and this and that and it's dirty and we can't keep things clean and um yeah. i think the pioneer woman is largely overlooked in this story mm. um what, yeah. were, what were people subsisting on at that time i imagine this was largely i mean there's probably a few farms like you talked about that were already here that were scratched out of the prairie uh, been been tilled and or plowed and uh uh but beyond that i mean we're couldn't have been a lot for crops. They probably couldn't bring a lot of food with them. Um, no. Uh, were they hunting and fishing mostly? Or? They were doing some of that. Um, there was a, the nearest flour mill at that time was in Keokuk or down wow. by Keokuk. That's a trip. That's yeah. a trip. And they would go down, you know, haul down their wheat and things and have flour made. Um, their gardens, the women immediately had, had large gardens. 
Um, you know, every farm family had a cow and a pig and some chickens. Um, but, you know, a lot of these people who came over, too, were craftsmen. I mean, we had several blacksmiths in Palo. They had several um, people who had owned stores. At one time, in the early 1850s, Pella had six or seven, like, general-type stores, general wow, stores. Wow. And a lot of that sprung up because of the gold rush. The, all these gold rush people uh, came through Pella. Really? And, boy, the Dutch were going to make some money on them. Yeah. So they, they caught that just, oh, just sure. in they time. Oh, sure. They just caught that. And a lot of the Dutch, young Dutch guys went along with them and came back mostly defeated and, yeah. and, and you know, not... Didn't make so would money. they have been buying livestock probably down in St. Louis and then yes, moving ship them, them up? up the river. Okay. Um, we do have records of one farmer who came from the Netherlands with 20 head of cattle. And what? He, <laughs> yes, and they all made it over. And, and everyone that guy, else was... That guy was not popular until they got <laughs> no, to Pella. Everyone else was... Yeah, that's true. As soon as he gets to Pella, everyone's He's like, why you brought these cows? But before that, they're like, Brian, your cows smell so bad. You know, I can't imagine what it costs for him to do that. But oh, he evidently yeah. had a, like a purebred strain or something that he really wanted to because it says all 20 of them made it. Um, he also brought some farm equipment. Um... But yeah, I mean, the, they really the set the second year, third year, second year, there was another wave of immigrants who came in, and mostly because the ones here had written and said, "Hey, come," but they needed that money coming in. I mean, they're just there was no place yeah. to really trade. They needed the money to be able to trade, and so over the next until the Civil War, over the next ten, twelve years, you see every year waves of not sometimes big ones 1853 there were like another two three hundred people who came in wow you know then a few trickle here and they're almost always when you see them listed by family a big family would have come um but by 1860 61 when the civil war breaks out then immigration has pretty much dried up yeah yeah so then it it's just been from there the 1847 to about 1860 yeah and uh and and, and so they're they're building they're farming. They're they're getting everything ready to to go. And and then when the Civil War breaks out, did they have like they they yeah, couldn't they, have been? Did they participate? In the yeah, Civil they couldn't War? have yeah. been that passionate. I mean, they weren't that connected. Oh, to they it were or, very passionate. Really, they became they became. And I'm not sure how this worked logistically, but they became American citizens within months of coming to Pella. Wow. Um, somebody came down from Des Moines, administered the oath to like two three hundred men at one time. And I'm assuming then that. Did also meant their families were um, American citizens. Part of the reason for that was is that a big election was coming up for county stuff. Mm. And Skolte said, we want to be part of that. We don't want to have people who aren't Dutch making all the decisions. Yeah. So they became citizens. They put people up. They won. I mean, he he was a smart guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But when the Civil War came, uh, Marion County fulfilled its quota very, very quickly. Uh, and the Dutch and it's and the Dutch boys who went, I mean, I sometimes think, you know, these were farm kids, a lot of them. Yeah, they've been on this boat over here, but they haven't seen much of, you know, violence or anything. Yeah. And here they were sent off. In fact, they were so green that some of the stories say to even teach them to march, they, they couldn't get it. So they wrapped hay and straw on their legs and they'd have to say hay foot, straw foot hay foot, straw foot, instead of left, right? Wow. <laughs> because they just, they couldn't figure that out. And they didn't know English well enough. Um, and so it was, you know, they went off and a, and a big chunk of them were killed or were pre- imprisoned at Andersonville 
or died of uh, diseases, dysentery and, mm. and cholera and other diseases. Oh. Um, you know, we've got lists of them. And, and yeah, they had just become citizens and come to America 10, 12 years earlier or less. But they, they believed in freedom. They so. did. They believed very strongly in preserving the Union. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That was the biggest... Um, you know, Skolte had a huge influence on that because he had a relationship with Abraham Lincoln. Really? He wrote, yeah, he was. That's he went to his inauguration. He wrote letters back and forth. Um, some of them, I think he was kind of telling Lincoln what he thought he should do. And uh, he was, you know, and when Lincoln was killed, he was he was devastated. But, uh, yeah, yeah. We, we have some items in the Skolte house that Lincoln gave to Skolte. And, uh, I think I saw that. Was one of them a... Um, uh, a sculpture where when they, I think I remember hearing a story oh, when like they ripped death, it off his death mask. Thing. Yeah, they yeah, ripped it off his face. There's a cane. Um, there's a shawl, and I'm not sure what all else. They're they're over there on display. Yeah, but um, yeah, he he went around in school. He went around campaigning for Lincoln um, hmm. quite what do, often. What do you think? As you've studied all of this, I'm sure you've sat back many times and been like just in awe at decisions made or, or clever things done. What is the most clever thing you think Sculpty has ever done, good or bad? Uh, you know, I think I think he saw big enough to buy a lot of land. Hmm. Um, in fact, somebody just brought this in, and it's a plat... Of all the land he originally bought in Black Oak, and um, some of it's in Mahaska County, some of it's in Marion County. Uh, each page is a different part of the plat, but he he bought everything he could uh, because he foresaw that more people would come, and he he really was a brilliant guy, and I liken him to someone like Thomas Jefferson. Mm. Um, controversial, but had his finger in every pie and had a vision for things that he could see that no one else could. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah. And I think he, he has to be, um, applauded for that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That, you know, you hear the, a similar story in a lot of, you know, a lot of these kind of epic journeys of a people, you know, a mass emigration, there's usually one or two figures that really rise up as a leader. And I I like how you said he was, he wasn't perfect by any means. No, And none of those guys were, they all had their flaws, but they, for whatever reason, people continued, you know, even though they, they grumped at him and everything, you know, I, I heard once, um, I just, got done listening to a uh, biography on uh, Daniel Boone. And one of the guys that went with Boone and the uh, Transylvania, you know, land agency Mm -hmm. that went out and established Boonesboro. um, He was, there was this huge deal where all the guys from Boonesboro had to go make more salt. And while they're making salt, the Shawnee uh, uh, tribe in the area um, surrounded them and basically, you know, had them. And Boone worked out a deal. Hey, you can take us all as prisoners as long as you promise not to torture anyone and not to kill anyone. We will, you know, peacefully go and be your your prisoners. Well, he he ended up saving all these guys' lives. But one of those guys in there whose life was saved by Daniel Boone 
w- thought it was the most traitorous thing that oh, Daniel yeah. Boone would hand him over like that and remain for the rest of his life a major opponent of Daniel Boone. And, of course, Daniel Boone had other flaws. He had a lot of strengths, but also other flaws. But they rise up above still and continue, even though, you know, there's all that pushback in the background. And as a result of their faithfulness to their cause that they mm-hmm. truly believe in, you know, you, you see success yeah. in the end. And so I think there's something to be said for that. Yeah. And I, and I you know, I think Pella also should take credit for um, – the, the colonies that it birthed out mm. because in 1870, 50 families moved up to Northwest Iowa to or- settled Orange City. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, yeah. There's, a tr- there's a real strong connection. Yes, between there is. Pella I mean, and, and they there. were all pretty much, I mean, a lot of people came in then directly there, but 50 families started there. A group went out to Oregon. Uh, really? Yes, they're in the Willamette mm. Valley, and we still have some contacts with them. A group went to Kansas. And there's a little Dutch pockets in um, in parts of Kansas. Um, and I don't think, you know, I can't find anything that when the Orange City people said we're going, that anybody was angry or upset. It was like, go, you know, go mm. start, get going and do well, you know, that yeah. kind of yeah. thing. Um, so land was always a huge, huge uh, motivation. Yeah. That yeah. is fascinating because in Europe uh thomas Paine was it Paine? about a hundred years before them would have said uh all humans have the right to uh oh life liberty and the the right to own land yes. right before that and i wonder if they would have been if if uh Skolte really took that to heart and decided that mm. owning land what was such a big deal well that could very well be i mean they were in a country where that was so landlocked and and they traditionally had very large families. Um, I mean, my, my husband's grandfather came when he was six with his family in 1910. He was one of 16. So you have 16 yeah. kids, and they want a farm. Well, what are you going to do when you own a 50-acre farm? You're going to have to find some land. And I yeah. think it was they were so landlocked, and so um, there was really no choice in their life of what they could do or become yeah. that it was just sort of a... And a lot of these people came in their 40s and 50s. And I know, I have to know, being in that age range, that they were doing it for their kids, not themselves. Mm. You know, they knew that this was going to be a miserable trip for them, probably. They were leaving their families, but they knew their kids and grandkids. There's a lot to say for that attitude. There is. There's a lot to say for that attitude. Yeah. My goodness. And and their kids and grandkids and great-great-great-grandkids, I mean, just growing up in the area, they there's an understanding like we appreciate what's come before it. And there's like a strong Pella pride there's, and, and it's really, it's really amazing to say like, this is where we can we come from one. They know where we, they come from and yeah. people of Pella and, and a lots and lots and lots of people don't uh, just like you were saying at the beginning, part of the, um, the great parts of Pella, part of the success that they've had is due to one, the industry and the hardworking mm-hmm. people that are here. But secondly, they're connected to where they mm-hmm. came from. Right. They're connected to the roots. And that is a big part of what Kent and I are talking. Yeah. We talk about on the podcast. And that I found that to be when I was growing up, my friends and I, we all knew genealogies. We knew where our families came from. We could say who came with Skolty, who 
my, one one branch of my family, the Van Wykes, they can trace back to 1300. Wow. And when I got to college wow. and, you know, I'd say to people, well, what are, you know, what ethnic background are you? And they're like, oh, I don't know. I'm a little this, a little of that. Mm-hmm. And that was just, to me, was just totally foreign. I couldn't understand that. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but most, and we were the exception. I didn't know that at the time. We weren't the rule. We yeah. were the exception. Yeah. But, so. Now, so I, there, there's two other things. First of all, we got to bring this conversation to Prairie here in a second. But <laughs> but uh, uh, before we do that, there was a really famous person who would have been settling into Pella for a short time not too long after the establishment and that'd be uh the old gunslinger mm-hmm. Wyatt Earp. What was the connection how did how on earth did Wyatt Earp end yeah. up in Pella? Uh his father Nicholas Earp, they were coming um from Illinois. Wyatt was born in Monmouth, Illinois. He was 2 years old when they arrived in Pella and they had planned to go farther west but one of their children died along the way and they decided for whatever reason to stay here. Um Nicholas Earp was a a hard man. He was uh, he was a justice of the peace for a while. He was um, a union recruiter, uh, but he was a tough tough man. And his sons they all lived here for fourteen years on and off um, until eighteen sixty four when Wyatt was sixteen. They formed a uh, wagon train that went out to San Bernardino, California. Whoa! So, so, you, so their last year was eighteen sixty. So they yes. came here very early. Eighteen fifty. history. Yep. Wow. Eighteen fifty. Wow. And it's interesting. We don't have a lot of info on the Earps here, other than newspaper articles that would talk about the Earps um, brothers and cousins, because Nicholas's brother came too and settled near Sully. Um, that they were like to come into town and fight. <laughs> and we do have a, an article. It's, it's hilarious. We, we redid this on the street last year, um, a play of this. Um, Wyatt and his brothers were coming home from school and got in a fight with a group of Dutch kids, the Goss brothers. And one of the Goss brothers took off his wooden shoe and hit Wyatt with it. And Wyatt went home crying to his dad. And his dad said, get back out there. If you don't get back out there, you'll never be able to stand up to him again. And, Wyatt went back out there and beat the beat the <laughs> stuffing out of one of the kids. That was one of those uh, Dutch words. Yeah, the yeah. Reese, <laughs> beat, beat the they were taught to fight, and I'm sure that there was friction between the the Dutch non-Dutch. Um, yeah, yeah, that was my that was my next one. You beat me to it. So they were not a Dutch. family. No, they were a Scots Irish family originally from North Carolina hmm. uh, that moved into Kentucky and then up into Illinois and just made that American thing heading west. Yeah, and that's then, wild though because yeah. everyone here was so fresh off the boat that they would have been speaking basically Dutch yeah. most of the there time. There were, you know, there were a lot more Americans as they called them here than what you would have thought. Okay. Um, more, I mean, it would. People saw it as an economic place to go. Sure. Um, we had people coming in, starting hotels. Once the railroads in, starting things. Uh, a lot of immigrants coming in with the railroad. Uh, so the history of Pella is not just one of the Dutch. That's, it's the history of a lot of lot of different people throughout the years. Do you know yeah. any of those any of those uh, last names that would have been around at that time that weren't Dutch last names for some of those oh, early gosh. families? Um, yeah, I could look them up. I don't. I can't think of them right off. But there were quite a few. The Nazimans, they're still in the area. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh, the Greens, the Clarks, um, the Bosquets, they were French um, Huguenots. And one of them came in and married one of Skolte's daughters from his first marriage. 
um, Keebles. Um, yeah, there were quite a few, quite a few. That's interesting. In. Yeah. yeah, that's neat to hear that. Yeah. Is there any telling in, you know, journal entries or, or letters home uh, about the prairie, describing the prairie by some of those early settlers as they came here? Yeah, there is, and I can I can do some digging around for you because I don't have it right off. But a lot of the letters going back home would talk about. Um, well, they came up when they came up to Pella. They got off in Keokuk and then walked or bought oxen or mm-hmm. a wagon or something and some of them talk about the the flowers and the the tall grasses and um mm-hmm. everything coming through you know until they hit some of the towns on oscaloosa was there already fairfield was there already um but yeah i can find some and send them to you but i don't really have a lot i mean because sure. because we remember the accounts of people being like oh it's like it's like a a sea of prairie. It's a golden sea. Right. But what we don't talk about is how often they complain about the insects and the, (laughs) you know, it's their Like it's bad. Prairie is not, it's very hostile place. It's hard to, it's hard to navigate. You know, you got grass. that's as tall as your horse. Right. Exactly. You know, it's bunch grass. So it's tripping hazards and tough on wagon wheels. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Not, not, not always a great time, but, uh, yeah. Did they did they describe any of the wildlife in that? Would they talk about bison and elk? Yeah, and they like do. That? They do. And I don't I, I don't have that right off. But even like the History of Marion County book that was written in eighteen seventy eight that I've got, um, they do talk a, a lot about the there's a whole geological survey in there of what the dirt was like and everything and oh, what that's the, cool. Yeah, that yeah, is fascinating. You, yeah. So it's uh it's, it's fun to imagine that and fun to imagine them, you know, yeah. starting out there living. Did did a lot of the people, <clears throat> you know, at what point did Pella really become the the hub of the community? Did did most people stay out kind of on the fringes and, and farm or did, was it kind of a 50-50 thing? You know, I was a blacksmith back in, in the old country, so I'm going to be a blacksmith here. I don't care about farmland. I just need a spot to set up my shop. Most of them did. A lot of uh, the ones who went into farming, um, who really, the biggest opportunity was for people who are listed on like ship manifests as uh, farmhand or hired man. Okay. You know, there was, and they would probably have done that the rest of their life in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. We think here of a hired man as maybe a young, unmarried or newly married guy who would move on to farm. Back then, that was your occupation and you Mm. were living at the mercy of a farmer and whatever housing he would give you and your family. So a lot of these people came over. Some of them couldn't afford to come and and would give four years of service to a farmer when they got here. Um, Sometimes they had a little money saved up or they would borrow from somebody. But most of those hired men turned into very prosperous farmers. That's cool. Yeah, that's neat. That's the American dream. That is, yeah. Wow, man. Well... We really, really appreciate you taking this hour and, and hanging yeah, out with us. Yeah, this is fun. Yeah. yeah. We, we, we uh, want people to know because Pella has a really cool story. We want people to hear it. Yeah. If you had to leave, just as we wrap this one up, if you had to leave our listeners and, and Nicholas and me with like one thing that you think everyone should know about the history of Pella, what, what would you say? Well, I think it, it would be about history in probably more in general. I... It hurts me when I hear people say, 
oh, history's so boring. I just hate it. I hated it in school. And nine times out of ten, that's because it was taught in a way that made you hate it. <laughs> yeah. It was a blackboard full of dates, and you had to write them down and regurgitate them on a test. Whereas history is only the stories of people. And I, I would say if you have people in your life who are older, you need to really start talking to those people. You know, how I wish I had asked my great-grandmother more questions about her coming to the U.S. And I didn't. I was a little girl. Um, but ask those questions and tell those stories of your families because that's what makes history. Mm. Yeah, love it. That is really cool. Well, thank you so much. Um, if uh, you all are interested, what what's it's PellaHistoricalMuseum.com. Right. Is that? It's uh, Pella PellaHistorical.com or PellaHistorical.org. Yes. Yeah. And you can see all of our campuses. We have the Village, the Windmill, Skolty House, Clock and Spell, and Amsterdam School, which is uh, west of Pella. And we'd love to have you come visit. Yeah. yeah and Tulip Time, coming up here very soon. Uh, you'll get a chance to make that trip yourself because we're going to drop this episode i believe right nick before yes tulip time? yes most of the time we're a few weeks out we record and we drop it but, but we are so excited about tulip time and so thankful that you would just put us in last minute that we are going to drop this episode the same week we're recording it uh which means i will be editing it late tonight uh, okay great <laughs> yeah. but i will also i also put this little this little uh tip in there for you guys it is very busy here during tulip time so if you're like really interested in all this historical conversation that's going on right now i would suggest maybe coming a week or two after yeah. you can still yeah you can still enjoy the spring beauty here around town but yeah. then you can go at your leisure through all the museums they're excellent museums you can go yes. try out the the dutch bakery you can uh you know go to some of the restaurants around town it's it's a wonderful place to be so and i want to i want to make this point to all of those people that grew up in pella and they just assume they know all the things about pella and i've talked to many but you've never been to the pella historical museum you should go definitely that's it is right a great time it is you'll learn a lot and you'll enjoy it yeah and you'll be able to be connected to it because we know that being connected to where you're from actually changes you it, it makes you better mm -hmm. it makes it makes your interactions better yep. with the people that you're around and and so again thank you so much thank Val. you guys and uh everyone remember conservation just like with uh Skolty being one person that changed a whole community conservation happens just one mind at a time You've been rewarded for continuing to listen past our outro music. We have uh, Val here. She she get, went over to one of her books and she looked up some of the information on the natural uh, scene here in the Pella area when settlers were first moving into the area. Yeah, this is from the history of Marion County and it was written in uh, 1887, I believe. And it's it's uh, section on prairies has a couple paragraphs and it says. Between the strips of timber are high undulating prairies on which innumerable small streams take their rise. There are also many small prairies along the streams, the soil of which is very fertile. Prairies are, in fact, the prevailing characteristic of the county. They are abundant in quantity and mostly of a very excellent quality. Prairies, however, are not found in this county of so great extent as in most counties of the state, and there are none in which the soil is of an inferior character. 
On nearly all of the divides between the rivers and running streams are found large tracts of beautiful rolling prairie lands, well-drained, easily cultivated, highly productive, and conveniently located to water, water, timber, mills, and markets. The character of the soil in these prairies is such that good crops are raised even during very wet and very dry seasons. The soil is light and porous so that 10 hours of bright sunshine will dry the roads after a heavy rain and fit the plowed field to be cultivated. The same peculiarity of soil, which enables crops to withstand much moisture and thrive during a very wet season, also enables them to endure prolonged droughts. The soil being very porous is capable of absorbing a large amount of water during the raining season, and when the drought sets in, the forces of nature bring back to the surface the surplus moisture from the subterraneous storehouses with as much ease as the water in the first place was absorbed. This is not the case with that quality of soil commonly known as hard pan. The subsoil not being porous, only a small quantity of water is absorbed, after which it gathers on the surface in pools and is then carried away by the process of evaporation. Drought sets in, and as soon as the moisture is exhausted from the surface soil, plants wither and die. Along the river banks, river bluffs at numerous places gush forth springs of living water, whose supply even during the driest season seems to be exhaustless, while good well water can be obtained anywhere by digging or boring a distance of from 15 to 30 feet. The lakes, which are represented on the early maps, prove to be nothing but small sloughs. It is found that by draining these marshy places, they afford the most productive spots of land. It will not be many years under the present enterprising management till all these sloughs will be converted into cornfields. Mm-hmm. Excellent. That's and our property has one of those springs on it that still runs. That's 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 cool. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah. We love getting that perspective. And uh, again, just to preach the point of being connected to place, hearing yeah. that history helps develop that value. And I think it's so critically important to hear.